morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you may be, and welcome to Two, two Minutes 59. My name is David Von Evers. I'm your host. Two Minutes 59, as I like to say, is Lake County, Illinois' favorite, if not only, Clash-inspired podcast. If you're new here because you listened in last week to a special edition, a uh, special joint edition of this podcast and a podcast that I do with my wife called In the Shadow of the Evening Trees, welcome. Last week's show was a little unusual in that we um, recorded a single episode which we shared in two different podcast streams or on two different podcasts, but depending on how you want to look at it. It was our special 80th anniversary or 80th birthday, I should say, tribute to the great Garland Jeffries, one of my favorite performers and one of the great uh, singer-songwriters ever to come out of New York City. Um, I noticed that on uh, social media, Garland Jeffries himself was kind enough to share a link to last week's episode uh, of this show, and I appreciate that, and that may have driven some new people uh, my way, so thank you very much. Um, We do typically, or I do typically, uh, talk mostly about The Clash or uh, themes related to The Clash, things that The Clash inspired and so forth, so I do want to kind of get back to that. Uh, However, um, you know, I, I also want to extend some gratitude, extend some gratitude to Garland Jeffries and his wife Claire for having uh, liked and shared our posts on social media for the last episode and the the companion episode or the parallel episode I should say on Jennifer's and my podcast. Uh, I was thinking about after after we recorded and posted the podcast, I was thinking about the the fact that there may be a certain danger uh, for purposes of this show in that. If people listen and hear Jennifer's contributions, they certainly might prefer her <laughs> her contributions to mine um, or may prefer um, a joint uh, podcast between the two of us rather than my own thoughts and my own comments. And I certainly wouldn't blame anyone for feeling that way. However, I hate to disappoint you, but it's back to just me this weekend. But again, thanks to Garland Jeffries. And if anyone um, listening is is new to the podcast, um, because of Garland's promotion last week, I would I greatly appreciate that and thank you very much for joining. One thing I always say at the end of the show, and I'll say now up front, is please feel free to leave some comments. Um, I would love to have some feedback from listeners, and I'd be more than happy to engage. And if you uh, raise anything that. Uh, either as an issue with this show or that you'd like to chat about in future shows, I'll be happy to address those things. So please feel free to do that. My voice is a bit gravelly on this Friday afternoon. It's um, July 7th as I'm recording this. Um, We uh, just passed the July 4th holiday here in the U.S. And I, I confess that I did not listen to one of my favorite Clash songs of all time that would have been appropriate for the day. And of course I'm referring to I'm So Bored with the USA, which was on the U.S. version of the Clash's debut album that came out in, what, 1979 or thereabouts, 78, 79. The the U.K. version came out in 76, but the U.S. version came out a little bit later than that. Probably not 79. I should have double-checked that. Um, I'm sure it came out prior to London Calling, which was 78. So in any event, 
No, London Calling was 79. <laughs> I'll get it right one of these days. Anywho. Um, but that's always one of my favorite songs. And uh, I remember listening to it when, when I was first listening to that debut album, and I thought, you know, should I, should I take offense at this song? You know, I'm so bored with the USA and, and all the references to, you know, violence in America and things like that. And, you know, it dawned on me at the time, and I still think this is true, that a lot of the, um, a lot of the sentiment in that song really has more to do with how annoying it must have been for American pop culture to be so dominant and so, you know, so ubiquitous. So like if, if you were a, a young punk in, in the UK, you kind of couldn't escape American television and music and movies and so forth. And I imagine that was probably pretty annoying, especially at the time, you know, mid to late 70s when um, both in the U.S. and in the U.K., you know, the economy wasn't doing that great. People were struggling. There's a lot of desire to change uh, the the kind of the, the the parameters or the ground rules. A lot of attacks, you know, anti-capitalist mentality. And here, the biggest, most powerful capitalist country in the world is kind of, is kind of beating everybody over the head with our pop culture. So I kind of get where he was coming from. And I actually think it's pretty amusing in a lot of ways. It's worth pointing out that um, despite that song, I don't think The Clash or Joe Strummer were particularly anti-American. I think they uh, really loved a lot of things about America. I'm reminded of the fact that when they first came here and toured, <coughs> pardon me, toured, uh, they uh, chose Bo Diddley as their opening act. They, I'm not quite sure how that worked, but they got him to tour with them I saw saw an interview with Bo talking about that and saying, you know, maybe he didn't fully understand what they, these guys were up, up against. He said it was the loudest stuff, loudest music he'd ever heard. He didn't quite know what they were doing. But that that's not surprising because I think a lot of people in America, a lot of people around the world were probably, uh, you know, puzzled by punk rock in the early days, not really sure what to make of it. Uh, but... There, uh, but Joe Strummer in particular, you know, loved Bo Diddley and his music so much um, that he, you know, he personally wanted to ensure that Bo was the opening act on their first tour of America. And I think that's kind of, you know, kind of shows where the band was coming from while they were on the one hand, you know, this revolutionary force trying to um, break new ground and, and uh, create a new sound and everything like that they still had a lot of love and appreciation for the early artists who really did the same thing. I mean, when you think about people like Bo Diddley and the early rock musicians and the early blues artists, you know, they were paving a new way. They weren't trapped in um, old-fashioned sounds and traditions. They were doing their own thing, and I think that's what, what the class were trying to do, but in a sense it was a throwback to that earlier time, right? The music had become old and and you know less exciting and more um you know i don't know how to put it more more um, corporate and more staid and whatnot and and a lot of punk rock i think was trying to get back to the roots and uh the clash always appreciated uh the american roots of uh rock and roll so it doesn't surprise me too much that they would have picked bo diddley for their headliner anyway that was uh, completely off a track that was just a digression 
but when I think about um, I'm so bored with the USA <laughs> and then think about their kind of their embrace of a lot of aspects of American pop culture and music it just strikes me as a little funny there's, there's a little irony there but I still can have some sympathy for people in their circumstances back in those days it must have driven them nuts and I was also reading kind of on a related point in um, the Antonino D'Ambrosio book. Uh, you can once again hear my creaky chair as I move around. Let Freire Have the Hour. I've talked about this book before, uh, you know, and it's a series of, um, of essays. And I was reading it, uh, reading some selections not that long ago. And Mick Jones was, you know, quoted in the book as in the, <clears throat> in the early days of Clash talking about how um, you know, he, he basically he, he hated everything that was on the radio. He hated all, you know, he thought all music at that time was kind of, you know, overdone and, and dead, and he, he thought it was all terrible, uh, which is kind of funny because, you know, they mellowed considerably after, after those early days, and they put out music that reflected such a broad spectrum of sounds from more traditional rock and roll to, you know, R&B and gospel even, by the time you get to um, by the time you get to London calling in Sandinista, and obviously later in their career they were doing hip hop and so forth. So it is kind of funny that he went from you know Mick kind of went from everything is terrible, all music is terrible, we're the only band that knows what we're doing, to kind of embracing all the sounds that he might have at, at an earlier day uh, uh, thought thought were terrible. Anyway. But that brings me to uh, the thing I actually really wanted to chat about this week. You know, I, I've talked a lot about Joe, obviously, because Joe's kind of my guiding light when it comes to music and and philosophy and what punk is all about. I talked a lot about uh, uh, Paul Simonon, of course, um, and in part that's because um, the, the record that Galen Ayers and he just put out Can We Do Tomorrow Another Day is just such a fantastic record. I've listened to it multiple times since I downloaded it. Go and get it if you, if you haven't gotten it. You know, uh, it's, it's not anything really like The Clash, although you can hear some of the reggae beat that Paul was famous for in some of the songs, but uh, it's just so good. It's so enjoyable. It's clever, it's witty, it's funny, it's entertaining. Um, but it but it sounds great more than anything else. It just sounds great. So I, I think that record is really great, and that's kind of led me to talk more and more about Paul over the over the previous episodes. So I wanted to at least have one moment or one episode rather that focuses a bit more on Mick because after all, Mick's the guy who started the band. You know, Mick's the guy who brought Paul Simonon in. Mick's the guy who brought Joe Strummer in. Although, as I understand it. That was something that Bernie Rhodes sort of leaned on Mick to do because Bernie had this, Bernie the producer, Bernie Rhodes the producer, had this sort of vision of the Clash as being a very political band and an activist band, and that was kind of what Joe was all about. So that was, you know, it wasn't it wasn't so much Mick single-handedly picking out Joe, but um, there would be no Clash without Mick Jones, so I think it's, it's worth talking about. You know, I think sometimes um, because he unceremoniously left the band or more accurately was kind of shown the door, we have a tendency to kind of look down 
on on artists who find themselves in that position, getting kicked out of a band or whatever, or we develop these impressions of you know this this one is the cool one and that one is the less cool one. You know when you think of the songwriting uh, partners like you know Lennon and McCartney. Um, when I was much younger, we always thought of John Lennon as being the cool, edgy one, and Paul McCartney being more of the the pop star and, and being less cool. And, you know, as it turns out, Paul was pretty much the cool one after all. <laughs> Paul was the one. I mean, no offense to the John Lennon fans out there. Uh, I certainly liked his music. But Paul was the one who probably had, you know, was more grounded and had a clearer sense of what he wanted to do with his life and with his music. And, and um, you know, he was a pretty, it was and is, a pretty genuinely decent person. I. Th- I think that um, to take nothing away from Joe Strummer, I think sometimes Mick gets a bad rap because uh, this is kind of a pun there because Mick was the guy who was into rap. But anyway, uh, gets kind of a bad rap because um, he got kicked out of the band and and then um, you know people thought of the Clash as being more Joe because Joe is really. <clears throat> you know, in many ways, kind of like the main decision maker. Um, and he, of course, wrote the bulk of the lyrics. <clears throat> Pardon me. But I don't think we should discount the fact that um, Mick, uh, you know, made huge, huge contributions and has made some great music on his own, made some great um, post-clash music. And I don't really, you know, when you're young and you're a fan of a band and then the band has trouble and they break up, sometimes you feel like you gotta take sides, like, oh, I gotta be on I gotta be on Joe Strummer's team or I gotta be on, you know, John Lennon's team or whatever. And as you get older you're like you realize, nah, nah you don't. I it doesn't none of that really matters to you. Whatever happened between Mick and the band and why he left, um, you know, doesn't really affect me too much. Um, and it, it kind of it's it's unfortunate that they had a period of time where they weren't getting along and didn't really communicate with each other, but you know as it turns out, when you look into it, that time period really didn't last all that long. They actually patched things up, um, you know, fairly soon after the the clash, uh, you know, the, the clash part two <laughs> fell apart um, when uh, when Joe released the album, cut the crap to almost universal disdain. No one really liked that album. Um, it, but it wasn't too long after that that they were back in communication and then and they even working on some music together. So I think maybe in our minds as fans or in the minds of like, you know, music journalists or whatever, they blow these kinds of dis- disputes between musicians a bit out of proportion. It's not like the Gallagher brothers who really seem to hate one another. Uh, you know, this is maybe in the grand scheme of things, the falling out between Mick and Joe is relatively small in terms of their overall relationship and career. But in any event, getting back to Mick's contributions to the band, for one thing, you know, he's a damn good guitar player. Um, you you know, you, you go and you look up the, the chords to some of their songs, you play them, you know, if you're, if you're a guitar player, and number one, they're a lot of fun to play. Number two, the, the, there's a lot of really great clever um, songwriting there, I mean, you know, musicianship there. Um, and and one of the things that I think made punk work, and of course The Clash did way more than punk, but one of the things that made punk work was that the best punk artists had a real sense of melody. 
you know, you think about the Ramones. The Ramones, every song had a hook. Every song sounded great. You know, it wasn't just that it had an attitude and it had a, you know, kind of a, a, a new perspective, you know, new perspective for the time or whatever it was. The song sounded great, you know. I Want to Be Sedated is a great song as a song. That was true of so much of, of the Clash's music and even of their, you know, their heavily, you know, punk or their heavy punk stuff like Career Opportunities. That song is a great melody. It has a great hook. Garage Land, uh, another one is a uh, that's a great example of that. Remote Control, Complete Control, those songs were all songs that had a great sound. And that was, you know, by and large, mixed musicianship. Yes, I had a pretty cool voice, I have to say. You know, I mean, um, you listen to uh, a lot of the songs that, you know, obviously Joe sang most lead vocals on most of the songs, but you listen to songs like Stay Free, uh, Train in Vain. Um, I was just thinking the other day about Jail Guitar Doors because, again, that's a fun song to play. Although I guess, you know, in that song you can't necessarily credit um, Mick for writing the the tune because actually it predates uh, The Clash. That was actually a Joe Strummer song that he did with the 101ers um, pre-Clash. Uh, but, but Mick sang the, uh, the Clash version of it. On, um, again, I think that's on the U.S. debut album, U.S. version of the debut album. But, you know, it's, he, could, he could sing just about anything. I mean, Jail Guitar Doors could have been a song that, it could have been a country song. It could have been a, like a social distortion song such a great hook and his guitar playing although it's not particularly fancy on that song or, or complex or elaborate it just sounds so good you know it sounds so good and the same thing with stay free um man you know some of the lyrics are gonna would keep that song off the radio i suppose but um it's just such a great sound and i have to say as an aside that's the song that always reminds me of my late brother John, who really got me into the Clash, because that that just kind of just it feels like you know my brother in a strange sort of way. So in any event, I have a a strong personal connection to that song. Um, other great vocals, you know, somebody got murdered um, off of Sandinista. Uh, so he had a really a really great singing voice. His guitar playing is great, and I mean just some of the some of the. Um, uh, just the, the brilliant composition. Um, I, I talked before on one of the earliest episodes about the song Spanish Bombs, which I still would say is probably my favorite Clash song of all time. Although uh, not not related, not on the same in the same vein. But I would also put um, Washington Bullets up on that on that level for some reason that song just always stuck with me like from the first time I heard it. it was one of my absolute favorite class songs but anyway uh, getting back to Mick and his um, his skill at crafting a song I don't know that I've ever heard a better song start to finish than uh, Spanish Bombs and again you know being a terrible slash well I'll give myself a little bit more credit than that being a mediocre guitar player mediocre at best I fooled around with that song a little bit um, and I just gotta say you know again fun to play you know not overly complex um, more complex probably than the typical clash song 
or well, I, I wouldn't even say that, but more complex than some of their earlier songs that were more in a punk vein or in a, you know, kind of a stripped down rock and roll vein. Um, but just such a haunting sound. It's so and and the and the way the music fits the lyrics and fits the theme and sort of the mental image that you get from that song. It's just so fantastic. So again, I think Mick was. Um, Mick was really, I won't say underrated, because I, you know everybody kind of thinks of him as a, a mainstay and part of the Clash, of course, which he was, but the circumstances of his leaving the band you know, might, in some people's minds, sort of tarnish their view of him. But I think you gotta give it up for Mick and, and the, just the, the incredible quality songwriting some of those songs and then too you know he was also a big part of the experimentation that followed from uh that that followed from you know say the like the post um london calling era although london calling itself is a pretty inventive record and a pretty experimental record all of the stuff on sandinista and on um uh, the um the Combat Rock album and the, the I guess I, I guess you would, would call it a, a bootleg sort of the the dance versions of the Combat Rock tunes that were put out on a a bootleg record called Rat Patrol from Fort Bragg. Um, all of that stuff was really kind of Mick's inspiration. He was the one who became like super fascinated with. Um, you know the kind of the dance sounds and the and hip hop and rap and so forth, and kind of helped to pull the band in that direction. So it's not just that he was great at writing some of these more, you know, identifiable Clash songs or typical Clash songs or typical kind of punk or rock songs that the Clash did. He also was the one that sort of propelled them into that new sound, quite obviously because when he left the band, what did he do? He formed you know, Big Audio Dynamite with Don Lutz um, and, uh, you know, really went into that whole hip-hop um, kind of feel. There's a lot of sampling on those records, um, drum tracks and, and other sort of, you know, things that were current at the time um, in, in rap and hip-hop. So anyway, uh, he really kind of pulled them in that direction. And... Um, Speaking of kind of like the post-clash life of Mick and, and how Joe and Mick got back together again, um, there is a, a Joe Strummer collection that I've mentioned before that came out that his, um, his wife, Lucinda Tate, um, uh, curated, um, and it's called Joe Strummer 001, came out a few years back. Um, to see if I can find the specific uh, song that I'm looking for. The album came out in 2018. Holy cow, I didn't realize it was um, five years ago. But the final track on the album is a, a track called U.S. North that he wrote with Mick Joe, that Joe and Mick wrote together. Now this song, if you bought the, if you bought the 001 collection on vinyl, it was, it's actually on a separate disc. If you downloaded it off of iTunes, um, it's the final track on the record. I, you know, being a weirdly obsessive person, um, <laughs> did both of those things. I bought the, the album and also uh, downloaded it uh, so that it's on my phone. The U.S. North song, 
is like uh, it's like a 12 minute long song um, 10 or 12 minute long song the whole collection is two and a, is a little over two hours but a US North uh, song is is a long time they so they wrote the song together it has that very much that hip-hop feel or that kind of almost Sandinista era experimental feel it's a very cool song and I like it but they actually performed it together once or twice um, you know again as is in the in the 90s they were kind of patching things up and getting back together but they actually wrote some songs together and there's there's something really fascinating I you know this I'm basing this on um, a Wikipedia page which you know you never know exactly how accurate that is but on the Wikipedia page um, for uh, for Mick Jones uh, there's uh, they talk about he and, and Strummer working together and collaborating again near the end of Joe's life and um, they what's really really fascinating to me and I and I never heard this before I never came across this before but they actually were talking about bringing the band back together and you know um, apparently it was something that according to Mick Joe was definitely interested in and, and he was even working on some new material and it was a little unclear whether it was going to be for a Mescaleros album or possibly for a, a Clash reunion album and you know of course unfortunately he died but Mick apparently said that the, one of the last times he talked to Joe before Joe's death he asked him so so what are you doing with this new stuff you know what is what do you intend to do with it and Joe said oh it's gonna be for the new Clash album so uh, at the time or near the time of Joe's death he was actually contemplating at least the possibility of getting back together with Paul and 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 Mick and I'm not sure who the drummer would have been in that uh, case because uh, Topper had also left the band and they brought back Terry Chimes, I guess, for their for their last tour. Um, I don't know if Terry plays on Combat Rock. I think he does, actually. But in any event, uh, so I don't know who the drummer would have been. But in any event, um, very interesting, fascinating thing to think about whether or not um, there would have been another Clash album if Joe had lived. It wouldn't have been the, you know, what people think of as sort of the fake Clash without Mick and without, um, with the replacements um, that Joe brought together in the Clash Part 2 or however you want to consider them. It wouldn't have been that um, version of the Clash. It would have been with Mick and Paul. And, uh, you know, you think about bands reuniting after a long period of time and going back on tour and sometimes you know there's a tendency to maybe roll your eyes a little bit and say why <laughs> why why can't you just let you know well enough be um, and I think you know at times that cynicism or skepticism is justified but then I go back and think about you know how creative Joe was in the last few years of his life the albums that he made with the Mescaleros were some of the best music he ever wrote, some of the best lyrics, some of the best songs he ever wrote. And um, he was in this hugely creative period of his life. You know, there was a time period where he didn't have everything together, let's just say. And 
there was a period of time where he was living in Spain away from his family and um, there's an interesting documentary called I Need a New Dodge which is actually in Spanish with subtitles but it's about the time uh, that Joe um, is spent in, in Spain um, but when he came back when he came back to the UK came back to his family and so forth he really had this um, you know artistic revival a renewal and he started making these these great great songs and the Mescaleros are just a fine band you know they, they're very very tight they sound great together um, but then you think you know and, and, and the song US 12 kind of gives you a, just like a little glimpse or glimmer of what that might have been um, you know but but again he was in such a creative period of, t of his life and you know Mick was still making music and still writing songs and still involved in the business um, you know it, it's just it's it's sad but kind of mind-boggling to think of what they might have done and, and I think it would have been unlike the typical reunion of a, of a big influential popular band I think it would have been unlike the typical scenario I think they might have might have done some really great and really innovative and new stuff um, and it's 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 just a shame it's one of the many sad things about uh, Joe's passing not the least of which is that he passed um, but you know it happened at such a such a great moment in time where he was making such great music uh, and and you know now to think that he might have been back together with the clash and there, I mean you know there, I think there's good reason to, to think that that could have come to fruition because you know Mick in the years that followed um, when he played with different artists in different venues uh, the Justice Tonight tour and things like that he played clash songs he brought them back you know and he and he said this is what Joe would have wanted. Um, so it, it's, it's kind of sad to think what might, have, what might have come from all of that. But anyway, it is what it is. But we've got to give a hat tip to, to, uh, to, to Mick. We've got to point out, too, that, of course, you know, he uh, played on some of the Gorillaz records. He played on, um, um, uh, oh, Paul Simonon also. Played in the grills. He played on um, what was the uh, he he played? With, oh yeah, Flaming Lips on the the at 2019 album King's Mouth. Uh, Mick played on that. So he's kept going. He's he's produced records. Um, it's not just Big Audio Dynamite and then sort of Radio Silence after that. Um, so hats off to Mick. Um, I'm sure we'll talk more about him in subsequent episodes, but I've, I've been feeling bad about not really focusing on his contributions to the band. So that's what this rambling conversation, every, every episode is a rambling conversation or a rambling uh, stream of consciousness uh, monologue on my part, but that's where we are. Um, Thanks, Mick, for all the great music. Thanks for listening. I'm sure we'll talk about Mick many times again in the future. If you have any thoughts or comments on any of the things that we talked about today or anything else, please leave them in the comments section below. Uh, thanks for listening, and I will see you again or chat with you again next week.